You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. With the artificial intelligence revolution now well underway, the future is looking more uncertain than ever. Will our jobs all get automated away? Will soulless algorithms end up running more and more of our lives? Or will we find a way to make the technology work for us? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, I'm Keith Mancone, and our guest today is making the case that what future we do end up getting is going to depend an awful lot on what choices we humans make today. That guest is Kevin Roos. He is a New York Times tech columnist based out of Oakland, and his new book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin Roos, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thanks so much for having me. So the dangers of AI, the dangers of automation, I think this is all pretty familiar territory for a lot of us at this point. We've been hearing about how AI is coming for the trucking industry and for factory jobs uh, for, for years and years now. But it seems like what we've heard uh, significantly less about is what should be done uh, to prepare. And that is really the focus of your book, giving us some uh, guidance, uh, some rules uh, as to how to prepare as a society and uh, maybe even more importantly, how to prepare as individuals. So uh, let's start there, actually. Uh, Why is the future of automation something that you think average people should be thinking more about? Well, we exist right now in a world that is largely shaped by algorithms. I mean, everything we do every day is influenced by the kind of invisible tug of artificial intelligence. You know, the the things we buy on Amazon, the playlists we listen to on Spotify, the news we see on our Facebook and Twitter feeds, the videos we watch on YouTube and Netflix, all of these things are shaped by algorithms. And these algorithms are run by artificial intelligence. And so I think we tend to think of AI and and automation as being sort of futuristic concerns. Um, But this is really happening right now in the world and and at our jobs too. I mean, we we think about automation as sort of a blue collar phenomenon, but the, the most automation and the fastest automation right now is happening in white collar workplaces. It's happening in law firms and investment banks and um, and accounting firms and insurance companies. I mean, that's where a lot of automation is being done and a lot of people are at risk of being displaced. All right. So uh, definitely something for us all to keep in mind. And uh, another really important thing, just to get us sort of situated in time as well, another important thing that you point out in the book that, you know, while many of us working from home over the last year maybe felt like uh, everything was put on pause for a little bit, uh, this process of automation certainly was not put on pause and in a lot of ways uh, maybe even accelerated. Yeah, I've spoken to a number of of people in the AI space and the automation space who say that this has been a huge acceleration over the past year, that jobs that might have taken you know, 10 years to, to automate has happened in you know, 10 months. Um, and the corporations of America have been very busy figuring out ways to do their work with fewer human workers. Um, and so sales of automation software have skyrocketed sales of physical robots to grocery stores and hotels have skyrocketed and we've really seen um, demand for automation surge especially among big corporations 
And so what sorts of jobs should we be envisioning here? Uh, You're talking about white-collar jobs. Uh, I mean, I think in a lot of our minds, a lot of us would feel who have white-collar jobs uh, were just too sophisticated to be replaced by a machine. So what sorts of machines might be doing the replacing? Well, these won't be the kind of hulking factory machines that we think of when we think of robots. Mm. I mean, we think of visually, you know, sort of physical robots, you know, building cars. Um, but that's not what these things look like. It's, it's, it's software, mostly. It's algorithms that range from very simple to very complex sort of machine learning models. And they're doing, rather than physical labor, they're doing cognitive labor. They're making predictions, they're analyzing data, they are doing, in some cases, the work that highly trained, highly paid professionals are doing. One example that's often talked about is is radiology. Um, There are now algorithms that can diagnose certain types of cancers much more accurately than even the best human radiologists. And so, um, you know, if you are a radiologist, you are going to need to figure out a plan because that part of your job is not safe. Um, and so I think there's this myth that there are kind of these robot proof jobs in, you know, creative fields in fields like nursing or, 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 um, you know, social work or teaching or journalism, but really machines are making inroads into all of these industries. And so the question for us is how can we do our jobs in a way that makes them harder to automate? Yeah, I certainly felt a little bit of a, a chill go down the back of my neck when you uh, wrote about the many ways that various uh, journalistic tasks are getting automated. And so uh, this really does speak to the increasing sophistication of uh, the technology that is is out there. I mean, maybe give us some general guidelines on what sorts of white collar jobs are, are most at, at risk here, because there is something of a pattern to it. Yeah, there's been some interesting research. Um, a, a few years ago, um, a researcher from Stanford um, teamed up with uh, the Brookings Institution, and they basically took a, a, a snapshot of sort of the comparison in the language of AI patents um, and the job descriptions um, that were available for various types of jobs. And they looked for phrases that overlapped. So, you know, generate recommendation or project sales or something like that. And they found that actually the most vulnerable workers were sort of mid-career kind of management um, type positions at pretty technical companies. Um, it was, you know, it was not the sort of entry level retail workers. It was actually the people, you know, who are working in financial services or, you know, accounting or, or even at tech companies. Uh, and they were largely, you know, more located in sort of highly, you know, skilled uh, industries and in metropolitan areas like San Jose and Salt Lake City and um, other places that we don't think of as particularly economically troubled. So um, the kinds of jobs that are most vulnerable are the ones that can be automated you know, by a script. So things that are repetitive, things that, you know, if you're using the same software in the same way every day, um, that that's the kind of thing that is sort of low hanging fruit for automation. And I think that the the general guideline that you gave is uh, if you could write a manual for your job and, and teach you teach somebody how to do it over the course of a month, that's probably a bad sign. Yeah. And that, you know, that applies not just to people in factories, there are plenty of, you know, 
journalists uh, who would fit that description as well. So actually, my first job in journalism um, was writing corporate earnings stories. So, you know, a company would come out with its quarterly report and I would you know, ingest the data and spit out a story that said, you know, Alcoa made $9 million in its smelting division last quarter or something. And that job has largely been automated. The Associated Press and other organizations now employ bots to write those kinds of stories. And so I, you know, I and other journalists who used to do that job have had to find other ways to, to, you know, stay relevant and, and employed. All right. Well, let's uh, talk about some of those ways to stay relevant in just a second. Real quick, I want to let anybody know who's just joining us that this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, well, it turns out the AI revolution is already here, but it's shaping up a little bit differently than many of us envisioned it. And our guest today, New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos, just wrote a book to help us all get our bearings. Uh, That book is called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. And maybe to help us get a fuller picture of what you're talking about here and where the limits of AI are as they currently stand. Let's talk about some of the jobs that are relatively safe, because there are jobs that are going to hold up a little bit better. And one of the examples that uh, you give a number of times in your book is uh, kindergarten teachers. Why would kindergarten teachers be more safe than, you know, these white collar workers that perhaps spent uh, years and years getting uh, high level graduate degrees uh, to do the work that they're doing? Well, it's important to understand the things that artificial intelligence does really well. So I spent a lot of time talking to AI experts and people who work with and on these tools. And they told me that the things that AI is really good at are things that involve sort of repetitive tasks, highly structured routine environments, predictable sort of variables, and that can be repeated over and over again, getting a little bit better each time, which is why, for example, AI is very good at playing chess. That's the same game every time. You can play it a million times, get a tiny percent better every time, and eventually you'll beat the human. So kindergarten teacher is an example of what I call a surprising job, which is you know a job that involves lots of chaos, very few sort of, you know, like sort of predictable outcomes, you're wrangling little children, like it's a very complex, chaotic job. And so that's very hard to automate right now. We don't have AI that can effectively do that. So surprising jobs are one category that the AI experts told me was was relatively safe. Um, The second is social jobs. And these are jobs that instead of being about making things or doing things for people, um, you are making people feel something. You're creating experiences rather than goods. And so these are jobs you know, in the social services, nursing, um, you know, therapists, clergy, you know, counselors of all kinds. Um, but it also includes jobs that we don't tend to think of as being social, like a bartender or a barista, people who, you know, their job is not just to make you a drink, it's to it's to connect with you. It's to give you some sort of human interaction that feels good. And that's why we go to coffee shops and don't just all make our coffee at home. Um, So that's the second category. And the third category is what I call scarce jobs, which are jobs that have sort of rare occurrences, low fault tolerance, jobs that are, uh, you know, involve rare skills or exceptional talent. And these are the jobs like, like 911 operator, where you know, a robot could technically do that job. You, we have automated call services, but we've kind of collectively decided that 
these jobs are too important to be automated, that when you call 911 to report an emergency, you want a human on the other end of the line. And so those are the final category of jobs that I think are relatively safe. Speaking with New York Times tech columnist uh, Kevin Roos, and you do have some advice for all of us for how we can future-proof ourselves, future-proof our careers, and even our personal lives. And so I want to get into that in a little bit. But let's zoom out for a second and consider how we should feel about this overall automation process that we're all going through. Because, you know, the debate has been raging for years and years and years, whether or not the uh, AI automation is going to be a a net benefit with uh, the optimists on one side saying that it's going to free us humans up to do the stuff that we really want to do. And we'll all be wealthier and finding more interesting times, uh, things to do with our time. And then the other side of folks who say that it's going to be disruptive and it's going to uh, eliminate so many jobs that we're not going to know how to run our society anymore. You settled on a position of uh, what you call sub-optimism. Define sub-optimism for us and how you got there. Yeah, this is my attempt to sort of like reject the the total utopian version of the AI story and the total dystopian version, because I think we ultimately have a choice. Um, We know that, you know, we can shape technology. We've done it before. You know, AI can either make people's lives much better by taking away the boring and, you know, dangerous parts of their jobs and freeing them up, or it can subjugate them to new forms of dull and dangerous work, um, which is what we see happening in a lot of white collar workplaces now. So um, we have the choice. And my sub optimism is that I am very optimistic about the technology itself. I think AI could be used for lots of amazing things. It could, you know, we could be working three days a week. We could be, you know, producing solutions to climate change. We could be curing rare diseases with AI. I mean, the the technology is really exciting. Right now, the problem, the, the reason that I'm not fully optimistic is that the people in charge are not using it mostly for those kinds of tasks. They're using it to, you know, take workers out of corporate structures they're they're using it to sell more ads you know through social media they're using it to do things that i don't think are going to end up helping us and so that's what worries me it's it's not actually the the ai it's the humans in charge of the ai yeah as a as a tech columnist you've been a fly on the wall for a lot of those conversations uh, bring us into that world what is on the minds of the people that are leading these companies that are moving in an automation direction they are very focused on reducing their costs and making more money. I mean, that is in some sense their job. And so automation, they are looking at as a way to achieve that end. So I I had a very disturbing experience. I went to a business conference a few years ago and saw all these executives sort of, you know, off the record in these backroom conversations, just sort of scheming about how they could replace huge percentages of their workforce with automation. Um, And they weren't concerned about what would happen to the people who were displaced and lost their jobs. They weren't trying to figure out ways to keep them on payroll and maybe retrain them to do something else. They were just trying to get rid of them because it would mean paying fewer people and making more money. Real quick, uh, before we get into the advice part of the interview, uh, we've been talking so far mostly about the implications of new AI for white-collar workers. What about blue-collar workers, though? I mean, the, uh, the AI driving, the driving of trucks, that is has been expected to take a, a big toll on middle-income, low-income workers for a, a long time. Are there jobs to be lost there as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, some of the most 
popular jobs in some of the jobs that, you know, have the most people in them in the United States are in things like retail, transportation, um, clerical work. I mean, those fields are all ripe for automation. And there certainly will be people displaced as a result of things like self-driving trucks. Um, I think the the upside of that is that self-driving technology is actually going to create a bunch of new jobs, too. Um, there are going to be, you know, self-driving hotels and self-driving gyms and self-driving restaurants, and all these things are going to require humans to to work at them. Um, self-driving in the sense the problem, that they're serving their own drinks, or exactly, yeah, you'll be able oh, to get in. You'll be able to get into a self-driving, you know, bar and uh, and you know have a drink while you're going from place to place. Um, and that's that's the way at least many AI folks see it. Um, but the problem with a lot of the automation that's happening today is it's not actually that good. It's barely good enough to replace a human, but it doesn't open up, generate lots of new jobs for people. It just takes away the old jobs. And so that's something that economists have identified as a real danger. Um, and it's a reason that we we actually, the solution is not to, you know, to dismiss automation altogether, it's to try to find the right kind that will actually open up new opportunities for people. And that was actually a really interesting point that you raised in the book is as opposed to uh, many of the technological transformations that we've seen in the past, a lot of the automation that we're seeing right now is not transformative in the sense that we're getting something 10 times better than what we had before. We're getting a just a, a, a an automated, maybe even slightly worse version of the thing that we had before. It's just the key is there's fewer people involved. And you uh, raise the example of the self-checkout line as a, 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 you know, a keystone example of that. Yeah. And I mean, another example is the call center, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I call a customer service line, I'm pressing zero because I want to talk to a human as fast as possible. I don't want to talk to the robot because the robot's not very helpful. But that's an example where, you know, companies that have employed automation in their call centers, they're not saving all that much money. It's not making them much more productive. Customers don't really love it, but they're doing it anyway because it costs less money for them. So that's what economists have started calling so-so automation or automation that's, mm. it's just barely meets the threshold of acceptability, but it's not actually any better than the human who used to do that job. Yeah, not quite a brave new world, just a so-so new world. Um, I real quick, want to remind listeners that you are listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, with more and more jobs getting handed over to the machines, what's left for us humans? Today's guest, New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos, lays out some answers in his new book, Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. So uh, let's get to those rules right now. And uh, you uh, have given some advice for what sorts of jobs are going to be uh, the safest for people. We've talked about that a little bit already. What if you're somebody who is, has found yourself in one of those jobs that likely will be automated away? What steps should you be taking over the next couple of years to uh, push back against this wave of automation and the chance that you're going to uh, get automated out of a job? Well, there's a couple things there. I mean, one is every job contains a variety of tasks. I mean, most jobs have very repetitive elements and very creative elements. And so the, the one of the things you can do is to sort of shift your focus from the repetitive elements, which are the most likely to be automated, to the parts that are the most human. Um, not everyone can do that, but certainly some people can. Um, and there are also opportunities to sort of humanize your work. One of the principles in the book is, is called Leave Handprints. And this is sort of based on conversations I had with AI experts, economists, people who have studied automation and labor. And 
what they told me is that it's it's we used to sort of have this sort of mass produced economy where most people were sort of trying to hide the human labor behind something you know if you were producing goods you wanted them to look uniform and smooth and and that was the value is that they were you know the same every time but in this new economy when most of the repetitive and mass produced stuff is being done by robots the thing that actually gives our work value is that we are humans performing it. And to sort of make that obvious is often to increase the perceived value of what we're doing. So um, uh, social scientists have a term for this called the effort heuristic, which is basically that we, we value things more when we know that other people worked really hard on them. So this is why, for example, you know, you can buy a, a pretty good flat screen TV for a couple hundred bucks because that was made by robots. But if you want a really nice painting or a ceramic bowl or something that requires human time and expertise, that's actually probably going to cost you more, even though it's much simpler technology. So in all of our work, whether we're accountants or journalists or lawyers or doctors, um, we need to be figuring out how to make our work as human as possible, because that is ultimately what's going to make us hard to replace. And you point out in the book that that's really not the advice that we've been getting for the last however many years. Uh, when uh, I was in college, uh, really the, the the message was to make to make it in this world, you need to be an engineer, you need hard math skills, you need STEM skills, and you're saying that that's not necessarily the case for everybody. No, we've been beating this mindset into people that if you want to succeed, you need to have, you know, these technical skills, you need to hustle, you need to work 18 hours a day, you need to optimize your time and be a productivity hacker and find ways to sort of work more and harder. And what we've know from history and just common sense is that if we are competing with machines, what's going to differentiate us is not our hustle. It's not our technical skills. I mean, even programmers can can and are being automated out of their jobs. So it's not going to be enough to have those technical skills. It's not that technical skills won't matter. It's that we'll have to layer onto them these more human skills. If you're a programmer, you need to be able to explain concept or, you know, complicated technological concepts to non-programmers and work together in teams and have leadership and collaboration skills. And those are the skills that are going to differentiate us and not how many programming languages we know. Mm. You also gave a piece of advice that really cuts against the habits that we're all forming uh, and have been forming over the last year. Uh, you say that it's important for people to work near to their colleagues to actually have face-to-face, in-person, human interactions. Um, that certainly is uh, not what many of us have been doing since the pandemic began. Why do you think that that's important? Well, it's important in non-pandemic times. Obviously, safety comes first, so people should not be crowding into offices until they're you know vaccinated and it's Good safe clarification, to do so. yeah. But I, I think that the research is fairly clear on the benefits and the trade-offs of remote work. So remote workers, people who work from home by themselves, they're often more productive than people who are in an office because they're not spending time commuting. There are fewer distractions. I mean, obviously, this doesn't apply during COVID when little kids are running around and you're distracting you and stuff. But in normal times, the research shows that remote workers tend to be slightly more productive, but they're also less creative. That's what the research tells us is that a lot of the sort of 
big insights that drive innovation, a lot of the, the sort of collaborations that result in amazing new products and services, they result from these kind of spontaneous collisions between people, you know, in the cafeteria or, you know, in the office, you, you bump into someone's desk and you say, hey, I've had this idea. And they say, oh, I've had this other idea. Maybe we could combine them. That kind of collision is really, really important for these sort of deeply human interactions. And that's just harder to do remotely. You don't get as many opportunities to do that. And so I think remote workers, you know, are going to have to try extra hard to convey their humanity and to have those interactions because they're not just, they don't occur as naturally in the work from home setting. Speaking with New York Times tech columnist Kevin Roos about his new book, uh, Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. And uh, you actually have rules going even beyond the workplace. You give rules for how we ourselves as humans can maintain our humanity when the temptation in a lot of cases is to turn over a lot of our decision making to these algorithms. And uh, this is the part of your book where I'm like, oh, no, uh, he's writing about me. Oh, dear. Um, because, you know, that that temptation is very pervasive. We we have uh, these apps that can tell us where to drive, how to drive there. We have apps that tell us what music we should be listening to. Uh, but you suggest that seeding all of that decision making, all of that personality uh, is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of invisible shift that I think a lot of us have gone through in the last five or 10 years. Our phones used to be our assistants. They would help us do things we could plug in. You know, I want to find a restaurant that serves Mediterranean food in my neighborhood, and they would do that for us. But now with the addition of AI and these you know predictive algorithms and recommendation engines, our phones have become our bosses. And that's a really hard relationship to maintain because it's it's sort of insidious. It sort of takes away our choice and our agency, and it makes us think we're doing the deciding. But in many cases, the, the algorithm has decided for us. It has sort of steered us in the direction that it wants us to go. And so I realized this... And there's um, sometimes uh, a, a profit incentive behind the uh, the direction it's sending you. Exactly. And I remember a few years ago, I... Um, I subscribed to one of these like wardrobe in a box services that, you know, you, you plug in your measurements and some things that you like, and it like uses an algorithm and picks out clothes and then it sends them to you in a box and you wear them. And I was like super into this. And then one day I was like looking at myself in the mirror and I thought like, I don't actually like this stuff. Like, I don't mm. like, this isn't what I want to be wearing. It's just what the algorithm told me to wear. And so I did it. Um, and I think that's what's happening on sort of a larger scale to a lot of us, and I include myself in this, is we are doing things that we are steered toward by AI and algorithms without even really considering whether it's what we want. And so that's what I'm urging people to do, not to throw out their phones and you know become Amish and move to the mountains, but to really sort of get back in the driver's seat of our own lives, to kind of take the power back from our devices and to use them as tools and assistance rather than letting them steer us around. Yeah, a really interesting part of your uh, book really <laughs> uh, made me stand up because uh, I, ha I haven't heard that particular argument crystallized in quite that way before. So uh, something to take note of. Um, in closing, really want to talk about the society level implications for some of the guidelines uh, that you're talking about, um, because you are suggesting that we are perhaps barreling forward with 
plugging AI into the decision-making seat at a society level in ways that haven't been fully thought through. Uh, so walk us through some of those scenarios. I mean, here in California, we're familiar with the uh, one of those debates, the debate over whether or not uh, pretrial parole should be, that decision should be determined by an algorithm. Ultimately, we decided no in a ballot proposition last year. But there's many other uh, decisions and algorithms uh, out there as well in these sort of high-level, opaque positions of power. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that and why we should perhaps be wary. Yeah, well, algorithms are being used in shockingly um, numerous contexts now. So it's not just bail. It's not just pretrial sentencing. It's, you know, who gets public housing. It's who gets, who's eligible for state benefits. Um, Algorithms are being used to make these decisions that have real and and enormous impact in people's lives. Um, And in some cases, there isn't a whole lot of transparency and accountability. We don't actually know how the algorithms are deciding what they're deciding. You know, from the outside, it's very hard to tell, you know, what's what's actually being considered. Um, And so I think we need to sort of take a step back and say, like, before we give these very critical decisions over people's lives and their futures to machines, like let's really be thoughtful about how we design these machines uh, and not just speed ahead and, and automate before we're ready for it. Because it's not going well in every case. I know there have been lots of instances where, you know, an algorithm messes up and thousands of people get kicked off their, their unemployment benefits, um, which really has a you know, harmful effect in their life. Um, there have been many other examples of that kind of thing happening. So it's, it, I, in an ideal world, all of these algorithms would run, would make perfect decisions and would never make errors. But in practice, that's not always how it goes. And so is there a, a role for regulators here? Absolutely. And there have been some laws introduced at the federal level to sort of have kind of algorithmic accountability to keep humans in the loop so that anytime there's an automated system that's making decisions about critical things. There's actually a human who has to sort of approve and oversee that process. Um, so there are various attempts being made right now. Um, but, you know, I think we, we need to pay attention to this on, on both a state and a, a national level. All right. Well, a lot of food for thought there and uh, a lot of rules for humans. Uh, we have been speaking to Kevin Roos, a technology columnist for The New York Times based in Oakland. His new book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin Roos, thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.